Good morning. You guys doing well? Vertigo is our teaching series. This is the last week, two-week series, The War Within. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Any uh, Steeler fans in the house? Any uh, Green Bay Packer fans? Okay, okay. How many uh, Jesus fans do we have? There you go. That's it. Enough said right there. Okay. Romans chapter 7 is where we are. And let me give you just a little bit of the uh, kind of a thesis statement here of this uh, teaching series. All of life is a battle between two selves, an inner conflict between good and evil. Now, let me ask you this question. You can answer out loud. Um, The world says mankind or man is basically good or bad. Actually, the world says that man is basically what? Yeah, good. You got it. So it says that man is basically good. And the Bible says that man is basically good or bad. Bad, bad. So it's interesting. I think we've got more evidence to prove the latter. Would you agree? I mean, that man is basically bad. I think when you look at the evidence around us, uh, there is no doubt a lot of inordinate suffering going on. The Bible says that suffering is a result of our sin, our rebellion against God. In fact, the Bible says by nature and choice we are sinners. And if you look close enough into your heart, you would find self-pity, judgmental thoughts, superior attitude, impatient words, envious feelings, unloving actions, self-centeredness, self-absorption, and the list goes on. All of those are symptomatic of worshiping anything more than God. And as a pastor, I've devoted my life to spiritual growth, yet it only took me a few seconds to come up with that list of sins. Know why? Because my wife has every one of those before she gets out of bed in the morning. Before she gets out of bed in the morning, she has every one of those working in her life. No, actually, I know my own heart. My own heart. And uh, I can see evidence of that sinful nature within my own, own life. And so all of life is a battle. An inner conflict between good and evil. But as we said last week, there is a major difference between the war before you become a Christian and the war after you become a Christian. The war before you meet Christ is a war that you cannot win. It's not possible for your heart to not worship something. The first of the big ten, ten commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. He doesn't give you a third option. You will either worship God or you'll worship something else. It's inevitable. So that is the battle that you cannot win. But when you commit your life to Jesus Christ, you enter into a battle that you cannot lose. And uh, we talked about the battle that we cannot win last week. Today we talk about the battle we cannot lose. It's after Christ. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's once again go before the throne of grace and open our hearts to allow God to speak to us this morning. Father God, your greatness is breathtaking. Your goodness is captivating. Your love is extravagant. May the expulsive power of our responsive affection 
for you exceed all rival desires and affections in our heart. Help us not to just see you, but be seized by you through the study of your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said... I'm going to read the text, and then we'll go through. There's three things we're going to look at this morning. The battle we cannot lose. And then we're going to talk about inadequate approaches to, uh, to fighting this battle. And then the gospel approach is where we'll end it. Um, the second half of, of Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions... For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see In my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin with the battle we cannot lose. Here's what we, uh, as I studied through this, here's what I drew from this text. Here's the first idea, first fill in the blank for you. A Christian delights in the law of the Lord. So there's something that happens. The text that we read last week, you'll notice that he didn't talk about delighting in the law of the Lord. That's, that's before Christ. But when your heart is what is known as regenerated, there's a regeneration that takes place with your heart, you have a delight in God's word. He says in verse 22, for I delight in the law of the Lord. So what does that mean? What does it mean to delight in the law of the Lord? And and I think even a more important question is also, do you delight in the law of the Lord? Well, maybe you need to have it defined before you can rather, whether you can see if you indeed do. And I gave you a number of verses here. Psalm 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I'll just run through these. You don't need to turn there. You probably wouldn't be able to keep up with me anyway. But uh, it says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And then it says he does what? He meditates on it day and night. So he's talking about this idea. If you delight in God's Word, you're going to saturate yourself with this this book. It's going to be that important to you. If you go to Psalm 119, it's the longest psalm in the Bible, longest chapter in the Bible for, for that matter. And it's all about God's Word. It's a phenomenal psalm. And let me just read to you some highlights from it. And it kind of gives us a little bit of an idea of what it means to delight in God's Word. He says in Psalm 119.11, he says, I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So storing up would be a part of that delighting. 
So meditating, storing up, verses 14 through 16 of Psalm 119, he says, I delight in your word as much as in riches. He says, I love your word more than all the money in the world. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? He goes on in verse 20 of of Psalm 119. We'll continue in Psalm 119. He says, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Psalm 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So you think of your favorite dessert, and what he's saying here is that the sweetness of God's word is sweeter than the the greatest dessert that you could ever taste. Psalm 127 through 129, he says, I love your commandments above gold, Above fine gold. I'm not even really sure what that means, but it's, it sounds good, doesn't it? But it's just, not just gold, but fine gold. All the money in the world, the best home in this world, the best car, the best whatever. He's saying, compared to God's word, is nothing. I, w- I love his word more than that. So let me ask you a question. Do, does, do these verses reflect your sentiments, your heart, Towards God's word. If not, there's one of two things happening. You're either not a believer or you're a cold believer. You're letting apathy begin to take hold. And you may come up with an excuse and say, hey, well, listen, man, that book is hard. I mean, it's a hard book to study and I've tried it and I've gotten frustrated. And, and not only that, I really don't have the time. <clears throat> and, uh, and besides that, uh, it's hard. It's really hard. And, uh, and I didn't do really well in school anyway. And so let, let, me, let me explain something to you. If you knew, if you really knew the author of this book, you would not let anything stop you from studying this book. Even if it was a different language than what you are familiar with, you would learn that language so you could get to know the author of this book. One glimpse, one glimpse of the author of this book and you will, be, you will delight in hearing his voice through this book. So the mark of a Christian is that he loves to have God tell him how to live, basically is what he's saying here. I delight in your law. I go to your word regularly, consistently. It is a habit of my life. And so uh, what you need to do if you want to develop greater desire is, is to get to know him. And it's kind of one and the same thing. Because as you get to know him through this book, the more you're going to be passionate about his word. And so that's one of the things that begins to change in your life. When you go from B.C. to to A.D., after you've made a commitment to Christ, is that you will begin to delight, delight in His Word. And, of course, there are many times I don't delight in His Word quite like that, and so I have to confess and repent. And it shows the the sinfulness and, and, and even the wickedness of my own heart. Here's the next point on your notes is that a Christian in himself is incapable of keeping the law of the Lord. Did you notice that in verse 15 and 18? Let me read verse 15 and 18 again. You can keep your Bibles open. I'll go back, refer back. He says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then verse 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So we all know this, that the Christian life is a supernatural life. 
And there's no way that we can do it in the natural realm, so we need some supernatural help. That's why we're going into the next teaching series for four weeks on the Spirit-filled life. We're going to talk about that. So there's my segue to the next series. And he's saying, there's no way within myself that I am capable of keeping the law of the Lord. So I love his law, but I can't keep it. Here's the next point on your notes. The more mature and spiritually discerning we get, the more we see sin in our hearts. Now, another way of saying that is the more holy we are, the more unholy we feel. That sounds a little bit, doesn't sound right, but it is right based on what the Bible teaches. I mean, here's Paul. He's writing this as a mature believer. And in fact, when we read this, many commentators read this and they go, they're, they're kind of astonished. Wait, wait a minute, Paul, you're struggling at this level? Yeah, yeah, and I, I've been walking with the Lord for a long time and yet I know, I know the depravity of my heart. I know the pull of the world. I know the work of the enemy to get me, to distract me from those things that are most important to me and that's God and His Word and His life in me. I did a little further research on this just to see if this was consistent in, in Paul's other writings. And maybe you're familiar with this, but three other places I hear in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I am, I'm the worst. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought about that and I go, I don't know that I've ever introduced myself or when I was sharing the gospel with someone ever say, hey, Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I'm, I'm wrecked, man. I'm the worst of all. We don't typically say that. And yet if we were in touch with our own depravity, we would. We would say, yeah, as I live this out, I need a lot of help. And the more we are in touch with reality, and by the way, the reason why we don't really feel that way, and we kind of cringe at even thinking about calling ourselves kind of wretched or depraved, is it's because of our arrogance and pride. It becomes a mask. It keeps us from really seeing the reality based on God's Word. Here's another place, Ephesians 3, 8. <clears throat> Paul says, I am the very least of all the saints. I, you know, I, when I look around this room, I feel a little better than some of you. <laughs> I've, I've seen where you've been. And yet, and yet it just proves to you and to me that I'm, I'm at times, many times, out of touch with the, my own sense of depravity. And yet Paul's saying, hey, I'm the least of the saints. And then when you thought that that was about it, he says in 1 Corinthians 59, I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. So that's pretty stunning. C.S. Lewis said this, ask Hitler if he was a bad man, he would say no. Ask Abraham Lincoln if he was a bad man, and he would say to a great degree. So the more mature and spiritually discerning we get, the more we see sin in our hearts. Oh, and by the way, the more, the more you see your sin, the more you, you cherish the grace of God. The more you have this unspeakable joy. I mean, do, do you see that? Because we know that it wasn't by our works that somehow we achieved our right standing with Him. It was by His grace. And so it helps us to appreciate His grace that much more. Here's the next one. <clears throat> no one ever gets so advanced 
that they don't struggle, that they don't struggle with sin. That's what we learn from this text. No one ever gets so advanced that they don't struggle with sin. This battle will not be over until we get to heaven. And so the very fact that you're struggling is evidence of God's work in your life. If you're not struggling, then we've got to question whether or not you know Christ and you're really walking with him and you're, and you're really taking a considerable amount of time looking into the full-length mirror of God's word to see who you are and what's going on in your life. I was thinking about this one, and uh, aren't you glad that God, uh, don't you think, God, that he doesn't have like a three-strike rule? Huh? It's like three strikes, you're out. You know, like California, they got a three-strike rule. But three strikes, you're, you're gone. You know, three strikes, and you can't, uh, you know, you can't be a part of the family anymore. You can't come to Desert Breeze. You can't come to small group. You're out of here. I mean, as I look around this morning, I think, I mean, this place would be empty. It would be just me and Jesus here, all by ourselves. No, that's not true. I'd be right there with you. Isn't that interesting? But, uh, but see, that's covenant love. We talked about covenant love. That God loves us, and the only way that he'll relate to us is in covenant love. He doesn't love us because we've got it all together and that we're lovable. He loves us in order for us to get it all together, in order for us to be lovable. Do you understand that? that? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing. I mean, oftentimes I've heard people say this. I've even felt this. Oh, my goodness, I, I, sh- I have no business even getting up and preaching this you know, weekend because I'm really messed up. I really messed up royally this week. And what, it's, what that is is based on religion. It's based on some merit system. I don't understand covenant love. Even more so, should I run to him when I see my own sinfulness? Even more, should I appreciate his grace? Even more, show, even more so, should I have unspeakable joy in my heart for all that he does for me? Here's the next point on your notes. The root of all of our struggles... Now, here's, here's where we, we go deep into our heart to see what's going on. The root of all of our struggles is competing desires seeking to hijack your heart from God's loving, wise rule, which is idolatry. So competing desires. Why do I do what I do? It's competing desires. These are insane desires to make anything more central to your acceptance, significance, and security than your relationship with God. See, an idol is whatever you look at and say over and above Christ, and you say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. It's anything we say that about over and above that of Christ. It can be a relationship. It can be money. It can be a possession, a position, a pleasure in life, any number of things. I'm going to show you a, a video here. It's, uh, it's really a crack-up. It's a funny video because it's a, a group of kids who uh, they sit them in this room all by themselves. It's just one, one child at a time. And they will place a, a marshmallow in front of them. And they'll tell that child that if they don't eat the marshmallow, when the, when the teacher comes back in the room, they'll give them another marshmallow. And I mean, I can, I can relate. 
it's, it's delayed gratification kind of a thing. And so I think that we're going to learn a little bit about those desires that wage war in our own heart. And then we'll talk about it. Watch this. Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? okay? All right. I'm gonna go do something and then I'll come back. It's yummy, yummy. It's really good. All right, so I'm gonna leave and then I'll come back, okay? So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? Okay. How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? Yeah. You wanted to eat it, didn't you? Yeah. So did I tell you I'd give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need them. That's good, huh? Can you relate? <laughs> I like that one girl that before the teacher even got out of the room, she was already down in it, man. It's like, yeah, I'm taking it right now. Forget you. Yeah, that's good. Now, this is what I wanted to talk about here. What these kids are struggling with is pretty innocent. And, uh, I mean, because there's no major consequences except for the loss of, uh, of an extra marshmallow. Although they did do some research. They said the kids that are able to delay gratification actually do much better in life, later on in life. So as they watch these kids and how they respond to this, something that's very small later on in life, how they're going to do much better if they're able to delay that gratification. But our struggle, our struggle is not so innocent with consequences much greater. And the bottom line of our struggle is who or what will I center my life on? And I, I have some illustrations here for us to kind of look at. So, I, so what we're saying is that the root of our issue and the root of our problems, the battle that rages in our heart, is these, are these competing desires seeking to hijack your heart from God's loving, wise control of our life. And here's some examples. For instance, if you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner as opposed to upon Christ, here's some consequences of that. You will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling, and the other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. So if you, if you don't uh, win the war of those competing desires and end up giving your heart and your identity is placed on your spouse or partner, that's what's going to happen. Here's another example. If you center your life and identity on your family and children, which is often seen in a lot of traditional settings, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. And at worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. 
That's why parents can kind of become a little irate at their kids because they're not jumping through the hoops like they think they should because so much of their identity is is tied to them. Here's another example. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, you will be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow, shallow person. And at worst... You will lose family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, you're going to develop deep depression. Let me give you a couple more. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up with worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. Here's the last one I'll give you. I mean, we could just, I could spend all day just talking about these different uh, counterfeit gods, so to speak, that we give our hearts to. If you center your life and identity on pleasing or, or on pleasure, uh, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something and you will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. So let me, uh, let's talk about inadequate approaches. So that's the battle we cannot lose. But here's some inadequate approaches in dealing with this battle, these competing desires in our heart. And let me give you kind of a case study here. A Christian friend has lost his job from an unfair action by his boss and comes to you and says, I am very bitter at my boss, my former boss, and have become very depressed since I have lost my job. I feel like a failure. And they're wanting to sit down and talk with you. Here's some inadequate approaches to that. The first one would be to be preoccupied with actions. That's your fill-in-the-blank actions. Stop acting like that. It's to say, hey, stop acting like that. Christians should be forgiving and joyful no matter what. Come on, suck it up. And uh, that's the typical approach among orthodox and conservative legalistic Christians. To simply tell an unforgiving, joyless person to repent... And to change their behavior doesn't go deep enough because a lack of self-control or a lack of, of being forgiving and joyful is coming from a belief that says, even if I live up to certain moral standards but don't have this, if I don't have a, this job that I so desperately want that I've placed my identity on or having, having the respect of a boss or co-workers, if I don't have that, I'm still a failure. Regardless of what you might try to do in the, in the behavioral modification realm. See, behavioral modification apart from heart transformation is pretense. It's just mask wearing. So that's inadequate. Here's another inadequate uh, approach to this is, is focusing on emotions. Uh, stop feeling like that. You shouldn't feel like that. Your problem is that you don't see how much God loves you. You need to think about your value to Him. And this is the typical approach among liberal Christians or even secular psychologists who say, hey, see what a great person you are. It's the self-esteem approach. Now, to simply tell a depressed person, hey, God loves you, rejoice, doesn't go deep enough also because the unhappiness is coming from a belief that says even if God loves you but you don't have this, then you are still a failure. You, you can see that it doesn't go, go quite deep enough. And, and with each of those, and this next one goes down to the belief uh, level of your life. The, the, the third inadequate way of dealing with this is thoughts. This is a good one. Stop thinking like that. Your problem is garbage in, garbage out. It's the power of positive thinking. Now, this is a technique that's probably used by most, most of us. 
And, but the problem is, is that to simply tell a bitter person to think positive thoughts also doesn't go deep enough because thoughts are dominated by what we value the most. And if having a successful career is more valuable to me than my relationship with Christ, then all the positive thoughts in the world about Christ will never overpower my career-dominated thoughts. Let me wrap this up. If you couldn't track with me on any of this, here's the next statement that will kind of help you to put it all together. What a person believes about his circumstances determines how he thinks, feels, and behaves in response. I want you to do something on your notes. Circle the word believes, believes. That's the most important thing. What you believe. It's not what happens to you, but what you believe about what is happening to you that determines how you're feeling and thinking and going to respond to the circumstances of your life. Too often we say, hey, I am the way I am because of what has happened to me. I am not denying, you know, uh, the tragedy of your circumstances, the difficulty of that. And in fact, our world tends to put all the blame on chromosomes or our conditioning, how we were raised, or our circumstances. And I'm not denying that those don't influence us. The Bible says they don't control us. And so we've got to go much deeper. And and where we go is we've got to get down to our beliefs. Because that's why you can have two people going through identical circumstances, and one becomes bitter, and one becomes stronger and greater in their character. They become better. And it's not the circumstances, it's what each of the individuals believe about those circumstances that determines how they're going to think, feel, and respond. And so... What a person believes about his circumstances determines how he thinks, feels, and and behaves in response. To tell someone to think, feel, and behave differently without dealing with the underlying beliefs is superficial and short-lived. You got it? You guys tracking with me? Okay. Show me that you're alive. Just shake your head up and down like that. Okay, that's good. I heard that. Okay, cool. Now, how do you deal with it? Right here, the gospel approach. And this is what you've got to do. You've got to identify your idols. And this is where we see uh, that, that Paul does here right at the end of the text. You've got to identify your idols. He says, wretched man that I am. The gospel asks, what is operating in the place of Jesus Christ as your real functional uh, salvation and savior? What are you looking to in order to justify yourself? And this is what I typically do. This is how I identify my idols. A couple different things. I look at my inordinate desires. Now, inordinate desires come as a result of taking a good thing in my life and making it an ultimate thing. That's idolatry. So I take a good thing. I can take my marriage. I can take my kids. I can take my grandkids. I can take this church, which is a good thing. But when I make it an ultimate thing, it creates, and I have these inordinate desires in my life, competing desires for the supremacy and the majesty of Christ. Does that make sense? So I look at what dominates my thoughts, what stirs up my deepest emotion, and how I order my life, how I live my life out. And that tells me a lot about what's most important to me. Regardless of what you might say, all I'd have to do is kind of follow you around. And if I, could, if I could read your mind, when your mind is free to think about what your mind is free to think about, if I could begin to see that, I could tell you what it is that you are most concerned about, what you're living for. Also, what you get most excited about. Uh, if you get more excited about the game today 
which there's nothing wrong with getting excited about it. But if your excitement level is certainly much more than what it is about Christ and all that he's done for you, I would say that there's certainly a problem in that. And even how you order your life and how you spend your money tells you a lot about your values. It tells you about, so I look at my own life as it relates to those things. We won't, I won't spend a lot of time on that, but let, let me share with you another way that I look. I also look at inordinate emotions. And I've taught you this in the past. This is, this is a good one. Inordinate emotions, uh, excessive emotions. For instance, um, if you lose a good thing, if a good thing in your life is threatened, you'll worry. That's normal. God's created you to be an emotional being and, and there should be, you know, a certain level it should motivate you. But if it is an ultimate thing, you'll be paralyzed with fear and fall apart. So if that good thing has become an ultimate thing in your life, if a good thing is blocked by somebody, you'll get angry. But if it is an ultimate thing, you'll become bitter and rage. So you can see the how it kicks out those emotions. If a good thing is lost, you'll be sad. But if it's an ultimate thing, you'll be depressed and maybe even suicidal. So you look at your inordinate, not only inordinate desires, but you look at your inordinate emotions. Now think about this. Think about the interaction you have with people in your life, whether it be a boss or or co-workers or... Or even on the home front, if there's rage or there's uh, anger or there's conflict or any of those things, those are, that's showing inordinate emotions. Somebody's getting in the way of something that's real important to you, more important to you than, than the glory of God. It's probably your own glory in some form or fashion, but you've got to get down to the root of that. You've got to begin to look deep into your heart and begin to see how, you, how you're wired up and what, what's going on within your own life. So you identify... Your idols, your friend in this case scenario that we're talking about here, your friend has misplaced his identity in his career and the respect he receives from others more than in than his identity, dignity, value, and honor in Christ. So you identify that. So if you were counseling and helping someone, you would help them to get down to the root of their belief system and where their greatest treasure is. Is it their job that they just lost, or is it in Christ who can provide for them another job? And he's their provider. And then you, then you get to the point of repent of your idols. That's your next fill in the blank. You repent. We're going con- to spend a considerable amount of time in the next four weeks kind of talking about this whole thing as it relates to the Spirit-filled life and what happens in our hearts as we kind of navigate through life and have the, as these things begin to pull at us one way or another. But you repent of your idols. Verse 24, he says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? So this is how I do it. As negative thoughts and feelings and actions arise, uh, I have to confront myself. I have to confront the underlying beliefs. For instance, I had, I had some people here recently hurt me. A group of people that, that, that hurt me. And, uh, and so my tendency is to be angry and to, um, and to have inordinate anxiety over it. And so what I do is I confront that with the fact of who I am in Christ as opposed to what they say about me. Does that make sense? So when I have those feelings rise up, when someone mentions their name to me, or I think about them, and one of the reasons why they hurt me so much is because, I'm, because I tend to be a people pleaser. 
And I felt like I really went out of my way to extend a lot of love and help. And then it was kind of like this knife in the back in their response to me. And so, you know, so it's kind of natural and normal to like, hey, wait a minute. But it's, I do it kind of inordinately because I put too much weight in what people say about me as opposed to what Christ has already said, said about me for all eternity. And so what I have to do is there's that battle. I have to wrestle with that within my own heart. You guys catch that? So when I begin to have those negative emotions rise up within me, or I'm dominated with these thoughts, or I find my behavior kind of lashing out at somebody for something, I've obviously got something, you know, that's in my heart that God wants to deal with. And it's a beautiful opportunity for you to begin to see God's grace and to have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't ever run from conflict. When you've got conflict kind of waging war within your heart, it's opportunity to get to know Christ more and to get to know yourself, to find out just how you're wired up and what's going on in your life. And so as negative thoughts and feelings and actions arise, you must confront the underlying beliefs with the truth that having a great career or a job uh, is a good thing, but not the ultimate thing of my life. And whatever my, my work or whatever I may do for a living, the Lord willing, Christ is my life. And that's what I do. I, I have to keep coming back to Christ is my life. He's my love. He's the love of my life. And what he says about me through the cross is my ultimate identity. So there's this wrestling within my own heart, within my own spirit. And I also remind myself this. And we talked about it last week. That God substitutes, if you fail them, will never forgive you. Even if you get them, will never ultimately uh, fulfill you. In other words, if you, if you set this mark that says, if I can just land this job and you're never able to land that job, you will beat yourself up the rest of your life. They're unforgiving. Or even if you do land that job in time, it will not ultimately fill the emptiness within you that only Christ can fill. So you have to remind yourself of that, that counterfeit gods, if you fail them, are unforgiving and even if you get them, will never ultimately satisfy. But listen, but Jesus, <laughs> if you know him, if you walk with him, if you know the extravagant love of Christ on the cross demonstrated for each and every one of us, when you live in the reality of that, if you fail him, he will always forgive you. And if you get him, he will always, always satisfy you. He will satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. And that's where we, the next point, he says, believe in Christ. He says, thanks be to God through, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, fill your mind regularly with the beauty and the value of who Christ is. And so this is how I, I overcome these competing desires is I fill my mind with the beauty and the value of Christ. It's called worship. And we all worship. It's what will you worship? What will you fill your mind with? What beauty and value will you fill your mind up with? And so that's why we, we study God's word. That's why we worship. That's why we, we pray. It's to remind ourselves all that we have in Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. Look at the next point on your notes. In fact, we're going to do that. I'm going to invite my son. He's going to lead us in a song here at the end. But belief is not merely an agreement with facts in the head it is also an appetite for the Lord Jesus Christ in the heart that exceeds all other competing appetites. See, sin is what we do when we are not satisfied with God. 
Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. So how do we overcome these competing appetites? By increasing our appetite for the Lord Jesus Christ. Making Him, making Him, putting Him at the center of our life and worshiping Him and seeing His glory and His beauty and His splendor. Robert Murray McShane, he said, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. And then it's on your notes, this next quote. He says, take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. He's praying that. He's praying that to God. So may he ravish our hearts. Do you know him? Have you given your heart to him? Are you living for him? Are you regularly treasuring him and filling your heart with the beauty and the value of him? That's what we're going to do right now. Would you stand with us? Stand with me. And make this your prayer this morning. It's about his extravagant love. And allow his extravagant love to go deep into your heart. And pray that you'll take it with you throughout this week. God bless you. Your love. Your love is extravagant. Let's meditate on what this song is saying. Your friendship, it is intimate. I find I'm moving to the of your grace, your fragrance is intoxicating in a secret place. Your love is extravagant. Say that again, your love. Your love is extravagant. Your friendship, it is intimate. I find I'm moving to the rhythms of your grace. Your fragrance is intoxicating in a secret place. Your love, your love. It is extravagant. Spread wide, spread wide of the arms of Christ. It's a love that covers sin. No greater love, no greater love have I ever known. Would you consider me a friend? Spread wide, spread wide are the arms of Christ. It's love that covers sin, and there is no great, no great love have I ever known. She can 
Consider me friend. Capture my heart again. Make that your prayer. Capture my heart again. Capture my heart again. Sing your love is extreme. In your love is extravagant. Your friendship, oh, sentiment. 